Hi everyone, and welcome to our Rare Disease Day special episode. I'm Georgie Rack, host of the show, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Owen Bryan. I have with me today two special guests, Louise Fish, CEO of Genetic Alliance UK, and Dan Louie, founder of CATS, Cure on Action for Tay-Sachs and Sandhol Foundation. Today we'll be looking at the key challenges patients face in getting access to life-saving medicines, the clinical trial burden, the EU pharmaceutical strategy and what that means for rare disease patients and often cell and gene therapy manufacturers, and lastly, the use of patient experience data. To draw some light on all of these issues and possibly get some answers, let's hear from our guest today for a quick introduction. So first, let's go to Louise and then we'll go to Dan. Hi, yes, I'm Louise Fish. I'm Chief Executive at Genetic Alliance UK and I'm really delighted to join you today. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Hi everyone, so I'm Dan Louie. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the CATS Foundation and we provide support to families affected by taste sacs and sandoff disease. It's great to be here today. Thank you so much. It's great for you to be here. Really appreciate your time to discuss these issues today. Right, now it's my time to ask you guys uh, a few little questions just to break the ice and to help people understand a little bit more about you. So if it's okay, Louise, I'm just going to ask you first. Yep. No pressure. These are just sort of very simple either or questions. And we ask everyone the first same question, which is, are you a town or are you a countryside person? Oh, my God, that's a good question. I used to be a countryside person, but I now am a town person. So I live in, in Hackney, which doesn't get much more city, in fact. <laughs> Absolutely right. So we've got a townie. OK, now, are you an early bird or are you a night owl? I am a night owl, definitely. OK, we've probably got to be a few in Hackney, I suppose. Now, what about Crocs or sandals? Oh, I'd say sandals. OK. And would you prefer to win an Oscar for being the best actor or would you prefer to win an Oscar for being the best director? Oh, director, definitely behind the camera rather than front of the camera as a general rule. <laughs> OK, and to finish, we ask a little bit more of a twisty one, which is, would you rather have created Facebook or would you rather have created Twitter? Oh, neither, I would say. I'm not a big social media fan, although I know they're really useful tools for work, but I would rather have created a way of getting people out into nature. Love the answer. Fantastic. Better than either of those two. So, yeah, you win. <laughs> Thank you very much, Louise. Dan, over to you. Town or countryside? I'm very much a city boy, so town for me. Okay. Thank you. Do you prefer Fridays or Saturdays? It's got to be Saturdays. Okay. Suit with a tie or suit with no tie? In today's day and age, it's got to be no tie, I think. And this is a little bit of a homage to Danny Baker, who I used to love his show on Five Live. If you're having a sausage sandwich, do you have red sauce or brown sauce? Uh, red sauce. Red, red sauce. sauce. Thank you very much. Yeah. And would you rather be able to impersonate anybody, so I'm talking Rory Bremner on steroids, yeah, fancy, or would you rather be able to speak any language? Uh, I'd love to be able to speak any language. All right, thank you very much. Well, that's my little quick segment done. It wasn't that painful, was it? Not at all. <laughs> just want to go back to the, the, the red and brown sauce. What about both in a sandwich? Oh, what about, <laughs> what about neither? <laughs> <laughs> it's You're completely both. blown the either or yeah. question, isn't it? We've, we've, Louise first broke cover by saying I didn't want any of the, the thing, which I thought was a fantastic answer. And then, you know, we've got the double brown and red sauce. Well, yeah. my mind's blown. Try it. It's the way forward. It's the way forward. Go on, I might try it. Definitely. Okay. So thank you so much for that for that quick fire round. I think we've got a really nice flavour of our guest today. So I'd really like to start the podcast by talking to Dan a little bit about why he started the Cats Foundation. 
So it was established in June 2011 by Daniel and Patricia, his wife. And that was after their daughter, Amelie, was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs at 15 months old in March 2011. So Dan, can you tell me a little bit about that? How long did it take for a diagnosis for Amelie? So with Amelie, we're actually very fortunate. I think a lot of this kind of will come back to the postcode lottery when it comes to access to healthcare. And that Amelie, born normal, achieved her milestones. And one day she just stopped crawling. No reason. Happy child, but stopped crawling, which we thought was obviously very strange. Took her down to the GP and he very quickly realised there was a, a problem, thinking maybe it's a brain tumour, no small baby wants to stop crawling. Took her off to get some, some tests done. And unfortunately, she was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs around about three or four weeks later. It's got a complex testing procedure. There's got genetic testing, enzyme level testing. Tay-Sachs is very quickly where someone lacks a certain enzyme in the brain. And what it, that enzyme does is it clears waste away. And without it clearing that waste, that builds up as rubbish, essentially, in the brain. It causes kind of brain damage and relentless deterioration of someone's ability to function independently. So born like a normal child and over a period of time they lose that ability to function independently requiring feeding by a tube uncontrollable seizures and unable to move but in Amelie's case because we had an early diagnosis it meant that we were actually able to spend a lot of quality time with her before the disease really took hold maybe about nine or 12 months where we could achieve a lot with her but at the time we obviously like everyone did some outreach for other families looking for support networks and sadly there wasn't actually anything in the uk there was a charity in the us but nothing where we were living so we decided that the the best thing to do was try to start an organization up that could really look for treatments and look for support in other families because we were told at the time you're never going to meet another family affected by this disease it's so rare in this case it's one in 320,000 so it's very very low incidence rate so new parents, first child, looking for other families, set the Cats Foundation up. And we were very fortunate to actually find there were families out there, but there was no one that had been able to bring them together. And that was really our first mission, bringing the families together, provide some peer-to-peer support, and then let's go looking for treatments. In our personal case, we realized very quickly that any treatment would be too late for Amelie. But we were very fortunate that we found companies and researchers and doctors out there who are actually doing some work into looking at innovative treatments that could potentially stop the onset of the disease, or in some cases, look at a curative effect. So as I mentioned before, we were very fortunate in our diagnosis story and that Amelie was diagnosed very quickly. Many families we learned over the last 10 years waited, you know, two, five, six years to get a diagnosis, which is really, for me, very troubling because these aren't kids who have a cold. These are kids who are severely disabled. They're going through a diagnostic odyssey for many, many years where they're going through countless testing procedures, lumbar punctures, MRIs. They're going through biopsies. And sadly, they're not being diagnosed quick enough. And I know we, we may touch on it later, but any treatment, as we saw with the MLD treatments that was in the news recently, the earlier you treat someone, the better the outcome will be. And in fact, many studies won't allow people to be enrolled into a clinical trial if the disease is too far progressed. So one of our big challenges, and again, Louise will probably touch on this later, is that awareness raising of how we can raise awareness of these diseases and also work at trying to get them added to newborn screening panels and, and things like that so that we can get that very quick diagnosis, not just for treatments, and I'm a big believer that the treatments are very important, but actually for the families to come to terms with a diagnosis because 
is nothing more difficult than being told your child has a terminal illness, but you've waited two to five years for that diagnosis. If you get that quickly enough, you can then come to terms with what the future holds for you and your family. Exactly. And it sounds like there's a real disparity in diagnosis because you mentioned, you know, you were lucky and you got that diagnosis within three to four weeks, but other families, you know, some are taking two, five, even six years for that diagnosis. Why do you think there is such disparity across the UK and, and just in general across Europe, Louise? You're right. So for rare conditions in general, the diagnostic odyssey on average is around five years. And that is far too long for people to find out what's wrong from, as Dan says, presenting with initial symptoms through to finding out what, what the issue may be. And it seems to be for a range of reasons, really. A lack of kind of screening programmes that are screening for even some of the conditions that we do already know about, whether that's conventional screening like the newborn blood spot test that every baby has, through to the more advanced genetic screening that we have available these days. Lack of awareness among health professionals. They're trained to kind of think about the most common condition, and that's understandable because they're looking at broad populations. But actually helping doctors to think if it's not something obvious, could, could it be something rare? And if so, how can doctors very quickly and easily find out information about what that condition might be? Because there are around 7,000 rare conditions. So there's a lot of conditions and they can't know every every condition really well. So how can we help them think, well, if these are the symptoms, what are the options from that range of rare conditions that it could be? So it seems to be a kind of real mix of kind of not screening for things, but also not really training health professionals to think rare and then to know where to go to find out more information about what rare condition it might be. Absolutely. And just touching on the, the newborn screening programme there. So, Dan, you mentioned MLD. And again, it's great news for, for families with children suffering from MLD. But again, if they don't get that early diagnosis, there was an example in, in the newspaper, I think a recent story where two siblings... The, uh, the eldest daughter actually was quite symptomatic, so then unable to receive the Meldy, whereas the younger sibling actually was just playing in the in the waiting room and they thought, you know, genetic testing, we need to test her. And, and she she was positive, got the treatment and now living, you know, quite a normal, healthy life like, like any other young child would. Do you think newborn screening across all rare diseases would, or the more genetic rare diseases, would alleviate a lot of these issues early on? Definitely. But I think we're in a really difficult position when it comes to treatments, because that all comes back to pricing. And these things are really expensive. When I, uh, There's a good quote that one of my professors always says to me when it comes to diagnosing early. And that's an example of this, this little girl who was tested in the waiting room. To test for it, you have to think of it. And he says, this is the conundrum that many doctors are in. Because they don't think of it, they never think to do their testing. And actually, in many cases, and Tay-Sachs is a rare lysosomal storage disorder, you can actually do a really simple plasma blood test for it. Just look at enzyme levels. It's non-invasive, which is drawing a little bit of blood. But because the doctors don't think of it, they're never going to order that test. And this is something that, that, that we sadly encounter quite a lot. But when it comes to newborn screening, we're always going to be in this position, banging the drum, add this in, you need to test for this disease. Because in my view, the treatments are very, again, very important, but you have to give families peace of mind and they have to be aware that, that their child is impacted by this disease so they can plan for the future. Because this isn't just a case of your child has a terminal disease and they're going to die in five years. There's an impact, the social economic impacts on the family. There's family planning for the future. There's house adaptations. There's having carers coming in and out your house. And like in our case, that took us probably a year to slowly build up to feeling comfortable with having someone in our house looking after our child when we'd done it for so many years. And that isn't actually thought about. And these are the, it's kind of the wider pitch when it comes to the, the whole newborn screening argument. 
Yeah, and I'd completely support Dan on that. I think there's so much talk about genomic screening and it's kind of really fashionable and really exciting, but actually there are a lot of much more basic tests that can be done for many of the conditions that we talk about. And it is getting the health professionals to think rare and do those tests. When it comes to the more formal newborn screening program itself with the, with the blood spot test, we, we screen for up to nine conditions in the UK, but there are around 20 European countries that screen for up to 20 conditions. So even with that really simple test that's already being done, we're not really making the most of it and helping families where other countries are either piloting newborn screening programs for certain conditions or, or have introduced them already. We're just way behind the curve, really. And there's so much focus on the genetic screening, whereas actually there are some very simple tests that can can be done for many other conditions, and we could be making one of, of the newborn blood spot screening conditions as well. Is that happening now, Louise, that every child is being tested for those 20 or so conditions? Yeah, my daughters are fairly young. When, you're, when your baby's born, there's a heel prick test, it's called. They take a tiny drop of blood from the heel of the baby's foot and they take that away and they test it. And in the UK, it's just tested for nine conditions. In fact, they're just starting to explore adding a 10. But there are a whole load of other conditions where they're either piloting that in Europe or they already have programmes in Europe, where again, as Dan says, it may be a new drug or treatment, but of the kind of 7,000 rare conditions, only 80 of them have a kind of treatment that could really be described as totally life-changing given early but it's the ability to plan for your child's condition you know genetic conditions are lifelong and of those around 7,000 rare diseases we think eight out of ten of them have a genetic origin and those conditions for most people are going to be lifelong and the ability for a family to come to terms with that and plan for it you know what support is my child going to need to make the most of their life that's what people want and they want to be able to do that with support from the NHS support from the kind of health professionals who are going to be available from, with that link from health professionals into the education system and the social care system to make all of that join up and make sure that, you know, their child can go to school and make the most of their education, but also make friendships. And, you know, the, the stuff that matters to all of us about how our kids get on at mm-hmm. school with the links into the benefit system in the longer term and what support will they be able to get to live a full life as, as young adults and into adulthood because people are, are surviving for longer with many rare conditions. And so that support, again, is, is kind of lifelong all of that ability to plan and think ahead is really important for families. And that early diagnosis helps them to, to start that planning process and come to terms with the fact that their child's might be, life might be a little bit different to other children, but it's still going to be full and as rounded and as happy as they can make it. I was going to ask, Eloise, why do you think the UK is so far behind? So you're saying that, that Europe are scanning at least 20 kind of rare diseases through the heel prick test for newborn screening. Why the UK only nine? Traditionally, the UK National Screening Committee, who, who make decisions about screening, have been very conservative in their decision-making, and we don't really understand why. There's a new chair of the committee come on board recently, um, Professor Mike Richards, whose background's in cancer screening, and we really hope that he will kind of bring a bit more enthusiasm to kind of trying to look at whether it's possible to add these conditions and really make a difference to, to children's lives. It's very important to make sure that we're, that we're doing that. Sorry, Dan, do you want to say something? Yeah, just... What's really interesting about whole newborn screening, especially when it comes to the drug development process, and we, we see this a lot in, in we've seen it in Tay-Sachs and we see it in other rare diseases, is that the patient community is rare, starts up, normally it's a family, starts this small non-profit up because they need a community. The community is developed. That community needs a treatment. So they go out and they find farm, they find researchers. They basically make these people start a drug development program for their, their disease. As that grows, that company 
then because it needs to be making money, it's a commercial organization, needs more patients. So to get the patients, they need to raise awareness and then they need to get that approved. But to get the approval, they need patients to get into the study. But to get the patients, they need to find them, which the newborn screening bit comes in. And this is the missing piece of the jigsaw that I get very frustrated with because we're telling companies research this rare disease. Some researchers are given huge MRC grants to, to start programs up. But actually that part to then find the patients to get them into the studies, it just hits a brick wall and nothing happens. The diseases are rejected from joining these panels. When the reality is... They've been able to get these companies to get to the point where these treatments are, are re really good to go. They need to find them. And that's why the newborn screening argument is, is so important. And that's why a lot of us get very frustrated because there just seems to be this sudden stop. And we've done all the hard work and then we just can't do that to find more patients because we are... And for something that's so simple, Dan, just a, mm. like you say, quick, simple heel prick test, you know, test those. It sounds so simple. Why are we so far behind? Why are we not caught up? And why are we not screening for more? Like you say, you know, you're fighting these patient advocacy groups are going out there, finding pharma, finding industries, fighting for, for treatments. You sort of, you, you get them investing and then you can't find the patients to enroll. It just sounds like a, a circle that just keeps going round and round down. Never ending circle. Sadly, it does. The frustration from our side is, again, in our space, we've seen companies do really well get to a point and then either they run out of cash because they can't find the right patients or the patients. And we know if we had a newborn screening in place, we would be able to find them. Or the other argument is that when they eventually get them approved, the drugs are so expensive and people are shocked. And like, well, that's because it's taken them 15 years to get here because you haven't helped anyone find those patients. And there's R&D costs that goes into these things. And that's why these treatments are so expensive that you could, in theory, bring that price down by enabling them to find patients earlier to take part. Absolutely. And then it comes into just thinking about where funding is for genetic diseases and for rare diseases. So there was an article recently, actually, that I read. 60 companies are all working on new therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And yes, that's great for the DMD community. Absolutely amazing. 60 companies, 60 different therapies for the same indication. It, yes, great, fantastic news for the community. But what about all the other rare diseases where there are no treatments. There's nothing in the pipeline. You know, and obviously this will have a massive impact on price as well because with 60 different therapies flooding the market, price is going to drop really low down. What's the incentive then for, for these drug manufacturers to, to develop? Because it's a flooded, flooded market. I don't understand why so many focus in one area, Louise, and, and there's not kind of research across the whole spectrum of brain diseases. Like you say, there's over 7,000 or up to 7,000. Why do we focus on so so few and not the many? You know, greater government kind of involvement in, in trying to encourage and focus a spread of enthusiasm, I think, would be really helpful. But as Dan says, it's it's very much driven by patient groups at the moment. And Genetic Alliance is an alliance of over 200 patient groups. The vast majority of those groups are exactly, as Dan has said, just an amazing family whose child has a diagnosis and they, they use that as this kind of springboard to reach out to other families. And then they drive this whole agenda, which is incredible, but it's kind of bottom up, not kind of, there's no top-down coordination from government, either of the support and kind of the way that NHS supports rare conditions or of trying to encourage companies to take a particular view or a particular perspective. On, on individual conditions. Would patient registries have a, have a big part to play in this? Do, do they help? Dan, I know you started your first mm. European patient registry. Has that helped? Has that supported finding those patients for clinical trials? 
No, it does, because it not only allows a central place where patients put their data, but also it helps raise awareness that, that this is here. And so you're looking outside the main hubs of countries, your UKs, your Germans, your France, to countries that maybe don't have such a good infrastructure in place in the rare disease space. Countries like Switzerland, which is growing, Austria, even Holland, that you can help that those communities get on the map with these sorts of initiatives. And bringing data together is absolute key because it highlights where the patients sit. So it's really important for companies to see the community exists. Talking about Duchenne, so the Duchenne UK, great organization, and they do something that lots of other charities are trying to do, which is we have to market ourselves. We have to look at it sometimes as a business and that we go to companies with a pitch. And the pitch is we're a resident community. You have a drug in another disease. We think it could be used in ours. Here are the numbers. Here where our patients are. We can help you. We will help you in patient engagement strategies. We know we can help in retention and recruitment. So we become an organization. They look at it think, okay, so if we want to pivot, we know we can do that in this group. So that's something we've done very successfully in th- with three companies. I know that's something that Duchenne UK do really well, is that marketing ability that they're a great group to work with. They have great links in the community and they will support companies all the way through. And they have a great industry consortium, things like that, which is kind of a framework that many of us smaller rare disease charities are using now to bring companies together as well to kind of work on things like endpoint selection, PRO development, that it kind of meets the needs of the entire community, not just one company. Yeah, the other thing that can really help with that, so I agree, I think, again, patient organisations finding cohorts of patients and helping companies reach out to them and make, make them aware that a trial opportunity is available and they may want to sign up if they're eligible for that opportunity. The registries obviously make a massive difference where a recognition charity can afford to do it and has the expertise to do that. And, you know, not, many of our charities don't, you know, being a parent of a child with a rare condition does not necessarily mean you have the skill set to work with health professionals and separate registry. It's a really hard job. And it's brilliant, as Dan said, that some charities do, but others wouldn't have the capability to do that, you know, alongside kind of caring for their child and having a day job. Often our charities are more just kind of Facebook support groups that bring people together and find amazing peer-to-peer support, but don't have the breadth of expertise to do that wider work. The other area that we, we, we're really trying to encourage the NHS to look at is where they have a specialist centre for an ultra rare condition. So where there are kind of conditions with maybe only eight people across the UK who have that condition, sometimes the NHS will set up a single specialist centre to provide coordinated support. And that specialist centre can be a great way for pharma companies to reach out to the community. There are other conditions where kind of networks of clinics have sprung up slightly more organically led by amazing clinicians. So, you know, you get a really keen nephrologist working somewhere who is really interested in a particular kidney condition. And he persuades his colleagues to start providing a clinic on the first Friday of every month. And then he reaches out to other nephrologists and gets some other keen people. And suddenly you've got 10 clinics across the country providing services for this particular rare condition. And again, the patient group often provides a really key role in raising awareness of those clinics in signposting patients and families to those centres of expertise that are growing up very organically. It's not coordinated by the NHS England or the the different NHS bodies in the different devolved nations. But those clinics, again, become both a centre of expertise and a really great place for the pharma companies to work with and kind of find a pool of people who may wish to engage and enrol in clinical trials. But finding those centres and raising awareness of them is very much done by the patient organisations rather than by the NHS, which is a source of real frustration as well. Absolutely. 
So it's really an interest. We've touched on the importance of newborn screening, clinical trial burden, and patient registries. I'd like now to, to move into patient experience data. Again, this is another trend that we're seeing quite a bit now with, with manufacturers. Is this, again, another buzzword? Is it a tick box exercise for manufacturers, or are they really, really listening to the patients? Are they really bringing them on board early on in their drug development, even before they're starting to think about their clinical trial strategy, that was a mouthful, to really ensure that they're they're designing their whole launch strategy around that patient, listening to the patient, bringing them into to kind of tables where you've got all the regular, you know, everyone is around one table discussing access for that particular therapy. Are you seeing a rise in the use of patient experience data and what's the importance of using it? In my experience, Yes. So I think companies are doing way better at building patient experience right into the beginning of their research programs. And we're seeing them inviting patient organizations and sometimes individual patients or, or carers, or uh, we prefer the term obviously people living with the rare condition, but the, the pharma companies still use the kind of term patients. So they are getting people involved early and it's helping them think through what data they're collecting right from the start of the trial. So it used to be very much just clinical endpoints. So, you know, percentage change in blood pressure, you know, is kind of quite abstract measurements. And actually what patients and carers can do is one, help them think through what else can they be collecting? What are the endpoints that actually matter to the patient and their family? What do they want to be different as a result of taking a new treatment? Because it's not a percentage change in blood pressure, although it might be the kind of surrogate marker. It's kind of the ability to take part in education or in the workplace or to just get out of bed and be more engaged in life and more engaged in family life. You know, what are the things that the, the, the individual living with the condition of their family really want to see changed as, as, as a result of the treatment? So thinking about those kind of quality of life measures and building those into the experience as well, but also helping think through the actual experience of taking part in the trial. It may be ideal from the company's point of view to collect blood every week, but actually in terms of the trial burden for the patient, nobody's going to travel to a specialist centre once a week to have their blood collected. So what is a reasonable amount of engagement to expect the person living with the condition and their family to have? How much time can they take out of education or employment to take part? And all of those things actually, that also, that really practical stuff helps persuade people to take part in a trial and to collect the data that's needed and make it as easy as possible for them to, to contribute to that trial and take part in it. The patient experience data is, this is kind of a new bit of a new thing really this pet but Dan I'd be interested you your journey started over a decade ago with this how has this developed how's this changed since you started in 2011? Well it's hugely first of all we're diagnosis you know with a rare disease you're told in our case as a parent you're going to become the expert you're going to know more than me and you and this is said to you by the consultant with 25 plus years experience you know wow I mean you should be telling me but you're telling me I'm going to become this expert, world-renowned individual knows everything about this disease. And it, it's mind-blowing. It must be so intimidating hearing that. I mean, we, we know that with Lib Meldy that the, the parents are the experts. And it's just, mm. oh, it must be overwhelming. It's hugely overwhelming. So what we we put together a program where we empower our parents and the patients as well to make sure that they are fully equipped when they go into consultations, they know the right questions to ask. They know if they're told an answer to challenge what they should challenge, what they shouldn't challenge, to sometimes have to take the emotion away from the conversation. But in the last 10 years, I've seen a big shift, especially the companies we work with on the treatment side. They're much more engaging with us as 
patient groups. They want our voice. They want to hear what we have to say. They want to understand, you know, what's the burden on the families to take part in trials, which I think is really important. Quality of life is not just the patient, it's the family, the, the whole family dynamic. What was really interesting for me was during COVID was everyone was like, okay, COVID is going to decentralize. Let's make our clinical trials from home. Load of things came up. One, most clinical trials are not equipped for that, that sort of approach. Two, they then got very excited. We can do all these measures from home. So fine, patients, you need to to get your child doing this, this measure where this device, you need to take, you need to record uh, videos. Again, that doesn't fit the narrative of the patient's experience. So there was this big uptick of people trying these new approaches and it's come down again. And actually people who are much more pragmatic realizing there's only so much data you can get from someone in the home setting. It can be high quality. You just need to make sure it's the right data. So in the case of some uh, taxia is the, the gate. Can you, record that effectively on a video camera. You can do that quite easily. You don't need then to be kind of obstacle courses and things like that to make it really complex because you can't do that in the home setting. And I think people have come much more around to making sure the, the trials are, are more patient-centric as the, as the phrase is at the moment. And do you think if, for instance, I or one of my children was diagnosed with a rare disease now, they would, I would be asked to be the expert. I would be the world-leading expert. Or do you think that's changed now? I still think you would be, but it depends on the patient group. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think inevitably you're certainly the expert in your, your own child's condition because, you know, the consultant might see them once a year for an, for an hour or so in, in a hospital setting and you're seeing them every day at home. But you've obviously got an expertise in the condition because you're living with the condition all day, every day, you know, 24-7, year round but you certainly have an, an expertise in how that condition is impacting your child. And often with genetic conditions, there's a huge variation in, you know, whether someone's mildly, moderately or severely affected. So, you know, you will always, I think, as the parent or the person living with the condition, be an expert in your own, in your own condition and need to kind of talk to clinicians about that. But it is, it is an intimidating thing to hear because what you want from the clinician is I know absolutely everything about this and I yeah. will be able to guide you through it. But in, in, in reality... The access to the clinicians is so rare that you just kind of make the most of that hour. And as, as Dan rightly says, you know, many of our patient organisations try to really make sure people go to that that hour really prepared to make the most of it and to get the information they need and to, and to be able to go empowered to the meeting and come away with what they need from it rather than being overwhelmed trying to get through everything so quickly. It's almost like it's been turned on its head. You know, normally when we go to a doctor, we expect them to be the experts on everything about it. And they'll tell us what we need to do to get better. Whereas here, it's almost like around, you've got to go loaded with all this information, optimise your time, make sure you've got everything in hand in order to, to give your child or yourself the best chance. And it's, it, it must be incredibly taxing and a real struggle. And actually, the big shift I've seen in the last 10 years is how we're, we're taking information in. Again, 10 years ago, pretty much everything was printed or it was done in big PDF documents on a computer, on your phone, your iPad, you would happily read. The families we deal with who are obviously younger, they're actually not so willing to be overwhelmed with that sort of information. It needs to be in bite-sized chunks. It needs to be in a format, video formats, or even apps that they can in, they can interact with because learning has changed. Attention spans are completely different. And that's been, the, I think, one of the biggest shifts is how we can communicate with the families the right information. No longer do we send out big diagnosis packs. We give them in bits and pieces over a period of time. Otherwise, we know it would just sit on the shelf and never be used. I think it was, was it Novartis? 
Owen. I can't remember that I built a video game for children. So that that's what they did. They kind yes. of adapted and thought, okay, how can we educate children on their illness? I know, video games, because that's what kids do. And they also feel, you know, they're doing what every other kid does. They're playing the video games on the computer. And it was really, really clever, actually. And, and I really like what they did. Again, it, it's just thinking of different ways, thinking outside of the box. How can we, you know, especially when it comes to children education, because they're not going to sit in front of a big dog PDF document or a, a very clinical focused video. They don't understand a word what's going on. And even some families won't understand that. Like you say, there's certain type of family person that's able to start these groups up and really push forward and try to change the agenda so really thank you so much for, for both of your opinions today lastly i just want to to really end it with how can how can industry really see the value of involving the patients early on how it will help their launch strategy in the end so by involving patients right at the early on beginning how can we educate pharma to make sure that they are really involving that patient right the way through that journey and actually helping to get market authorization at the end point, I suppose, at the end game. I think pharma is increasingly doing that. And I think they're doing that because regulators and decision makers like NICE and the Scottish Medicines Consortium and, and, and the, the Welsh regulator are, are, are all asking for that. So because they know that at the end of the process, they're going to have to talk about what it means for patients, what difference it makes to the quality of life, the individual and their wider family. They are they are starting those conversations earlier, which is fantastic. And it is really great to have those conversations early. And I think in the experience I've had of doing this when I've worked for uh, condition specific organisations, pharma can really see the value quite quickly of having those conversations early about how it's helping them reach out to families to get them involved in trials, how it's helping them to make the trials patient-centric, as Dan said, but then how it's helping them to think through what the quality of life data might look like. And, you know, some simple things like they often call it burden of care surveys for families to fill in, whereas actually for a family who's already having to fill in loads of really depressing forms for education and social care, saying all the stuff their kids can't do instead of all the things they can do. You know, it, just even rephrasing that as kind of impact of care can just make you feel a bit better about giving up half an hour of your time in the evening and talking about some positive stuff as well as some negative stuff. I don't know. There's just things that you can do to make it more engaging for a family to give up yet more of their time to contribute to something to support their child. And I think pharma appears to be really responsive to listening to that to far faster in many ways than the, the public sector adapting and responding to that and, and really trying to learn and, and improve. So there's always more they can do, but I certainly feel there's a real willingness and a real enthusiasm to engage with new ways of doing things and to listen to patients and carers where they are getting them involved. Dan, I don't know if that chimes with your experience, but I've certainly seen a massive shift mm. over the past 10 years. Definitely. And I've really seen that a lot of the companies we work with make sure that we're involved in the entire process, even the very early stages of the trial planning writing the synopsis when it comes to the protocol to make sure everything is included that should be included. And, you know, and our role as, as advocacy groups is to advocate. We have to do that. So we shouldn't be upset that that's what we have to do because that's our role. You know, to, But we're very fortunate these companies are now listening to our views and our voice to make sure that we put the patient at the front of the discussion. Because at the end of the day, if they're not, and more than likely the trial will fail. And I think a lot of the strategies that these companies are doing, especially their commitment to certain disease areas, even if they withdraw, they still continue to support them, I think is great. And I hope that continues as well going forward. 
That's great. Thank you both so much for your time today. Really, really enjoyed speaking to you both. I could speak to you all day long, but uh, unfortunately, we, we are time constrained. So thank you very, very much. So lastly, just want to ask both of you, what are you doing for Rare Disease Day? Any exciting activities planned? Dan, I know you like a marathon. Any any running plans for <laughs> Rare Disease Day? No, no not this no? year, not this year. No, no, we're running having a small, rest. No, just a rest. We're, having a, we're doing a small campaign about with our families, just to raise awareness of Tay-Sachs and off disease, to put it into the you know the front of the discussion, so people can be aware of the challenges we face as a rare disease community when it comes to all, all aspects of care of access to treatments. So we'll be running that on the Rare Disease Day. And Louise, Geneticalize UK actually runs Rare Disease UK. It's our longest-standing campaign, which runs the Rare Disease Day in the UK. So each year we take a different theme and we're very much focused at the moment on trying to get the UK rare diseases framework implemented. So last year in 2022, we published a report about good diagnosis and about encouraging all, all the aspects that Dan, Dan talked about and, and I've talked about, you know, trying to get faster diagnosis, but also a better diagnosis with the information about how the NHS will support you going forward and how patient organisations can provide support and, and link people into them. This year, we're focused on the second area that's flagged up in the UK Rare Diseases Framework on coordination of care and trying to encourage the NHS to learn from best practice where there is good practice um, around coordination of care, like individual centres where they're you know, a national centre for a particular condition or a network of clinics to try and really help the NHS see that good practice and to spread it for more conditions and more broadly across the, the UK. So that's our focus for this year. We're working with all of our 200 member organisations to try and uh, raise awareness of the importance of coordination and care and uh, raise awareness of those good examples. We've got parliamentary receptions taking place in Scotland, England and Wales. And uh, we know we've been working with our colleagues in sister organisation in Northern Ireland. They're also organising and thing in, in Northern Ireland. So really uh, raising awareness with NHS leaders and with parliamentarians like great practice around the big day. It sounds like you're going to both be extremely busy. Yeah, but I think that's that's always good for a rare disease day. And I'd just like to add that we do at Partners for Access our own awards for rare diseases. They're called Light Up for Rare Awards, and we have three awards. The first award we we gave was actually for for a patient advocacy group, making the biggest impact on the rare community, and it was actually won by cats. And it was a relatively close run thing. But you you picked the, picked the uh, second place at the post. We're <laughs> delighted that you won it. I think what you've done is just staggering, quite frankly. And any parent would look at you in in right. huge admiration. So we just have to say, well done and thank you very much. And people like you really do truly make the world a better place. No, thank you. No, obviously, the award's fantastic news for us, and it's a testament to the team. You know, it's very much making sure that we can serve our community and. You know, in our personal case for myself and Patricia, it's making sure Emily's legacy lives on, and we think she is. So it's great. It was great news, so we really appreciate it. Our legacy is definitely living on, Dan. Definitely living on. Just on some P4A news. So the P4A Warriors will be taking on the toughest UK challenge. So we'll be taking on the three highest mountains in 24 hours, starting with Ben Nevis in Scotland, moving on to Scafell Pike in England, and then Snowdon in Wales. So we're currently training, Miss Rack is training and trying to get herself fighting fit for the challenge. And we'll be doing that on the, we travel up on Friday the 30th, but we'll actually be starting the challenge at five o'clock on Saturday the 1st of July. So do support us with that. Give us some training tips because we need them. So there's some motivational posts and if you can spare it, 
please, please do donate to this wonderful cause. All money's raised will be going directly to Rare Disease Day and to Genetic Alliance UK, which is, as you can hear, a wonderful, wonderful charity. So we're doing all we can to support that. Thank you so much to my guest today for a truly inspiring podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and do stay up to date with the latest P4A news by following our page on LinkedIn and checking out our website. That's it for this month. See you next time.